Amen. Well, I just want to say thank you, Lord, uh, for what he's done this morning, and that's exciting. Uh, I know sometimes you can just hear a testimony. We've been walking with Scott a little bit and Barbie over this last while, and Scott's got another testimony of some things that God's been doing in their lives that really did prepare them for the difficult time they were facing, and that's another testimony. But uh, to see the Lord touch them this morning, that is just, wow, it's just, that's just fantastic. And I know there's others as well. But, uh, yeah, there was literally, literally, uh, there was just doctors gave him no hope at all. Uh, you are going to have this forever. You're too young for surgery. You might get it in 20 years' time, that kind of thing. But you're stuck with it. And so, yeah, so we're just so excited for Scott. And I can't imagine his joy. And, uh, and Barbie as well, to send him back to work. That's going to be fantastic. <laughs> so, amen. That's exciting. No, we can just hear things that God is doing. And, again, I don't know. How in the flesh, but we just kind of, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> no, no. no, a miracle just happened before your very eyes. Many miracles, amen. The presence, the manifest presence of God, that there are people who would never, who've never seen it in the course of their life, who've attended church all their lives, have never seen a miracle. So please never grow accustomed to the manifest presence of God in our midst. If anything, make, it, make you press in more. Um, we're going to look... Uh, and a couple of scriptures I feel I'm going to have to summarize even as I preach here a little bit. Not so much for time, but I just, I, I really want to make sure that we have a real application to our lives this morning. The things we've been studying. For those who are visiting for the first time, the series has been called A Matter of Time. We've been looking at what God's Word has to say about the book of Revelation. More particular, what it has to say about us as the people of God in relation to these last days in which we live and the much anticipated return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who we believe is coming back, but before he does, there's much that he still wants to do in the world, that he wants to do in his church, that he wants to do through his church. And, and one of the things I really believe God's trying to stir in the hearts of his people is not only that he would be present in our midst, but that we would really understand what it means to house his presence that we would be the people of God who carry his presence everywhere we go. And it's not just in signs and wonders that we see. It really is about who we are, who our identity is. That Do we really understand what it means to be a daughter of God, a son of God, a child of God? Because I really believe it breaks the heart of God in these days in which we live to see us, his children, still looking for our identity in so many things. And stuff that we buy and wear and what we drive and who our friends are and how we see ourselves in, in the natural scheme of things. But to really understand that none of that stuff matters. It's who we are in Jesus and whether or not we are saturated with his presence. He lives in us in his fullness and that we begin to manifest a way of life that people see that the things of this world are fleeting. They don't matter. What really matters is your relationship with God and the fullness that Jesus promised he would bring in that relationship and how he can re pre 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 anyways, rearrange your lives <laughs> in such a way that, uh, that your needs are fully met. But without having all the stress and worries and all the preoccupation with things that at the end of the day are just going to be a mound of ashes. So we've been looking at, uh, at the uh, Gospel of Matthew in particular. And, and Marcy, I apologize. We can probably skip in just a moment. We can skip ahead probably six slides. We're not going to read the opening passage. Uh, scriptures, we'll just look at a couple of passages as we go through. But we've been looking at basically what Jesus has to say about his return in the last days in which we live. And those words are recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17. It's called the Synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic simply means seeing together. Uh, 
the, pre, the prefix sin, S-Y-N, you, you've heard the word synergy, so it just kind of means together. And then optic, of course, has to do with seeing. So the synoptic gospels have to do with the fact that as the, uh, as the disciples wrote about Jesus' life and teachings in his ministry, that there was not any conflict in what they were saying, but there was more of a clarification. They each contributed different things to his life. So from all those different perspectives, you get this really well-rounded picture of what it was Jesus was teaching. And one of the main purposes as we look at these latter chapters of these gospels is to understand that what Jesus says consistently is that tribulation is going to take place before he returns for his church. Tribulation and great tribulation will take place before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, I'll just give you a second there because there's probably about six or seven slides in. After the tribulation of those days, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from every part of the world. Let me just say this really quickly, by the way. Sometimes people confuse this scripture with Revelation 19, which says that one day Jesus is going to come with the hosts of heaven to destroy Satan and at the battle of Armageddon, or to defeat him at the battle of Armageddon. The Lord coming with the hosts of heaven is not the same as the Lord coming for his people. Two different things. Anyways, verse 21 of Matthew also says, Jesus said this, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, we have made a very important distinction in our series these last few weeks between the two words, tribulation and wrath. We you say those two words, tribulation and wrath, two distinct words. The word tribulation in the Greek language is the word for trouble or affliction or suffering. And in Matthew 24 and Revelation 7, Jesus uses the term great tribulation. And then he says, but that time will be cut short, shortened for the sake of the elect. And the word elect in the New Testament is strictly used to speak of Christians, of the saints, of followers of Jesus Christ. Now, some say that that word elect applies to what they call tribulation saints after the rapture. And the fact is, you have to say that you've got to make that up if this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is going to work. But Jesus in Matthew 24 unmistakably states that when the trumpet sounds, the angels will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. And it's very difficult to make that mean anything other than what is clearly saying, and that is that the tribulation takes place before the rapture of the saints. And that frightens a lot of people. And it almost sounds like you're teaching something heretical, as if God intends all the horrible things that are mentioned in the judgments in his wrath to actually happen to Christians too. But listen closely. The only way you can come away with that belief is if you define tribulation to include the judgments that the Bible does not call tribulation. That's the only way you can get to that confusion. Let me say that again. The only way that I can be guilty of teaching a theology that consigns believers to suffering God's judgment when his wrath is poured out is only if you accept the word tribulation and the word wrath 
to mean the same thing, which is not what we believe. Jesus spoke of tribulation as being the general trouble that Christians face in certain seasons of their life and in certain parts of the world in particular. Job said in chapter 5, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. How many believe that we have trouble in life, right? We have trouble, we have affliction, we have tribulation. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, the great tribulation is a greater intensification of the period called the tribulation. But both the tribulation and the great tribulation, which will take place during that final seven-year period we've been talking about, both of those things are still altogether different from the wrath of God. And that's a really important distinction because there are a few things that we know, I believe, we know with certainty according to the word of God. The first thing we know is that God has not destined us to experience his wrath. If you have your Bibles, make note of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Does that sound like you before Jesus? We just did our own thing, right? We lived on our own impulses. And were by nature, listen, children of what? Of wrath. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all before Jesus Christ. We were all doomed to face, and rightfully so, the wrath of God and his judgment against all mankind who basically says, God, I don't care why you created me. I'm going to do my thing. We were there about to face the judgment and wrath of God but Jesus. And Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 7, says much the same thing. And then after listing off all the things that people who follow Jesus do not do, like filthiness, sexual immorality, crude joking, and so on, Paul concludes by saying this. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the wrath of God will fall upon the rebellious. The Bible talks about the wrath of God as one day visiting all those who have committed themselves to walk in a way that flaunts their sin and rebellion. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, probably one of the most dramatic passages on this subject. Paul says this, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from where? From heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Will you tell somebody, wrath is different from tribulation? Go ahead. Wrath is different from tribulation. A second passage, 1 Thessalonians 5. For God did not appoint us, speaking to believers, to suffer wrath. But what? To receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. We may commune with him. Okay? So I do not have an appointment with the wrath of God. Okay? As a child of God, I do not have an appointment with the wrath of God. And I can say that with confidence based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross who took God's wrath upon him so I would not have to. 
so that my sin is paid for and I'm free now to live with him and live for him. And it's also the revelation of God's word. Tribulation is a reality for any believer who chooses to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And by the way, the word witness, as many of you know, in the Bible, which is in the New Testament written in Greek, in the Greek language, the word witness is the word martyros. And what does that mean? We get our English word martyr. Isn't that interesting? To be a witness for Jesus is to be a martyr, not because a witness has a martyr complex. But because if you are a witness for Jesus Christ in many parts of the world today, it can cost you your life. Do you realize that today there are over 250,000 people who die for no other reason than they love Jesus? Every year around the world, 250,000 people die because of their love for Jesus Christ. You may be familiar with the name Cory Ten Boom. Cory Ten Boom was a Dutch missionary who was held in a Nazi concentration camp during the Second World War because she and her family had helped Jews try to escape the Holocaust. Her entire family, except for her sister, were murdered before her very eyes. She and her sister were sent off to a concentration camp. In an interview in the 70s called Prepared for the Coming Tribulation, she expressed some pretty strong views about the church and the rapture, and she pleaded with the Western church to prepare itself for a time when their faith is going to be severely tested. Here's what she said. Quote, there are some among us teaching there will be no tribulation, that Christians will be able to escape all this. These are some of the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the latter days. Now, I'm not accusing anybody, but I can tell you there's a whole lot of what is called cotton candy preaching on the TV today. And in churches today, there's a whole lot of motivational speaking, friends. And it may help you to be financially successful. It may help some of your relationships work. It may help your life to go a whole lot easier. But it is not going to help you a single rip when tribulation comes. Because the focus is not upon Jesus Christ and of picking up our cross and following him. It's about laying down our cross and getting into Jesus everything that we want to happen in our lives. He's basically in our lives to make all the good thing happen and prevent the bad from happening. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel in these last days in which we live. Corey goes on to say this. In China, the Christians were told, don't worry. Before the tribulation comes, you'll be raptured. But then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, I heard a bishop in China say, sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution and how to stand when tribulation comes. Now, there are times when we are persecuted simply for our love for Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we have to be paranoid. We can live with wisdom. We can live with discretion in these days in which we live. And yet, Jesus said that the world did not love him and the world will not love you. Does that make sense? If Jesus is in you, the world will not love you. And I suggest to you, today in our world already, and even in our political scene, what you can see, I don't care what political stripe you are, but it tends to happen more on the conservative side. If you say anything, do anything, in any way promoting any kind of morality, any kind of absolute, any kind of truth, you're crucified. Why? It's not because you're conservative or that you're liberal. It's not because you're Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump. It's not about that. Anytime righteousness stands up to say this is the way, 
This is the way to be free. This is the chaos that you're believing. This is the lie that you're falling for. Anytime truth stands up, I promise you, the powers of darkness in a variety of forms are going to say, shut up. We don't want to hear you. We will kill you. We will unelect you, whatever the case may be. It's not against a party. It's not against a person. Don't get, don't get mixed up in this. It's about virtue. It's about truth. It's about freedom. These are the things that are being violently opposed in our culture today. And yet, even in the midst of persecution, there are going to be a whole lot of people who come out of the world and out of that world system and are going to be grateful to you for eternity because you were a witness to them. And so one thing we know for sure in the word of God, we will experience tribulation. We read it in Matthew 24. Jesus said, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And when Jesus said, then there will be a time of great tribulation, if you've been following our series, talking about this last seven-year period yet to come, Jesus said there will be a time of tribulation, and at the three-and-a-half-year mark, exactly halfway, when Antichrist reveals his true colors, he says, then there will be a time of great tribulation. How many of you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, he said, greater things will you do than I have done because I'm going to my Father. Remember that? Did Jesus mean greater miracles will you do? Or did he mean more miracles will you do? There's probably not many miracles any of us can do that top what Jesus did. He pretty much covered it all. He healed every sickness, raised the dead, all that kind of stuff. I'm not yet raising the dead, okay? So I've got a ways to go. So he's talking about greater in scope. And in the same way when Jesus talks about a time of great tribulation... What he's saying is it's going to be greater, not in its severity, it's going to be greater in its scale. It's going to be global. Because right now, if you were to hear some of the stories of what brothers and sisters are suffering for the cause of Christ, you'll realize it can't get much more severe. It can't get much more evil, much more heinous, the things that are done to people today. That's not going to change. What's going to change is the scale is going to change and more of us are going to be sharing in the suffering that our brothers and sisters are already experiencing. That's why we're told in Hebrews 13, identify with those who are in prison as though you were there suffering with them. Identify with those who are mistreated as if you could feel their pain. When was the last time in your prayer life you asked the Lord, Lord, help me to feel what my brothers and sisters are feeling? Help me to identify with them. Help me, O oh Lord, to lay before you and to lament and to fast and to pray that, they, that their faith might be able to endure, that they could be the witness they want to be, that they will stand under it and not fold. Lord, I pray for them. How many brothers and sisters could use, like, like Bernice just mentioned, but in a, in a spiritual way, how many could use a fresh wind, do you think, brothers and sisters in prison about to give up, about to recant their faith, though they don't want to, but they don't know how much more they can go through? How many of them do not need our prayers? that they would just feel a fresh gust of wind, a fresh gust of hope and of strength. And when the jailer comes back expecting to recount, recant, they find somebody who's been revived. And they're standing there saying, I will never deny Jesus. How can I? He's so real to me. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. They need to be on your prayer list every single day. 
And then in Revelation chapter 7, we read these words. Then one of the elders, and again, we're speaking about tribulation before Jesus comes. Revelation 7, then one of the elders addressed me, John is saying, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Notice John did not say, these people that you see are the ones who came out before the great tribulation. No. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. So we know we're going to experience that before Jesus returns. And once again, God has not appointed us to experience wrath if we are his sons and daughters. But hear me, saints, he has appointed us to tribulation. He has appointed us to great tribulation. The two are different. The second thing we know is that the church will still be present when Antichrist is revealed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, what is that? It's the rapture, the taking of the church. Paul says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, because some were writing and saying, hey, he's already come, you missed it. Paul's saying, no, it's not true. Whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. He says, don't believe that. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Why? Say it with me. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Other translations talks about the falling away, the apostasy, people leaving the faith. It will not come until that happens and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul is saying you're going to see that. You're going to be here, saints, in the midpoint of, this, of the seven years. You're going to be here at the three-and-a-half-year mark when Antichrist turns on Israel and shows his true colors by desecrating the temple, and the great tribulation begins. He says you're going to be here for that. We know there will be persecution and martyrdom of believers at the hand of Antichrist. We read last week in Revelation 13 that the beast, the Antichrist, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It doesn't say they conquered him. They conquered, he conquered them. Listen to this. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, it sounds like a conflict, right? It sounds like a contradiction because we're just told Antichrist will be allowed to conquer the church. What does that mean? I believe it means this. In the last days, there will be a short season, Jesus says, where it will appear that the Antichrist has an upper hand over the church. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden before they took him to a mock trial and later on crucified him? When they came to arrest him, the disciples wanted to oppose. They wanted to save Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said to those who came to arrest him in Luke 22, this is your time, the time when darkness rules. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who at a simple thought could have annihilated those in front of him. But he says, no, this is being done according to the purpose of the Father. For this moment, darkness rules. And I believe in the same way what, what John is telling us Revelation is that Antichrist is being allowed to conquer believers, but it doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It doesn't mean we lose our joy. Remember what happened to Peter and John when they were basically beaten for having preached Christ. What was the response? They came away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Totally different turn than we see in our culture today. Antichrist will have authority to conquer believers for a season in that he will be able to persecute us. He will be allowed to imprison us. He will be allowed to take some of our lives. 
but it is through the perseverance of the saints, Revelation 12 says, that they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Will you read that last line with me? They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. How in the world can you overcome if you're dead? This is so incompatible with most of North American Christianity because in North American Christianity, if you have an overcoming faith, everything works out good, right? Your life is spared. You're triumphant. You're victorious. Everything goes right, at least as you want it to happen to you. And yet the story of the church is that it has always thrived wherever there has been struggle, wherever there's been persecution, and wherever lives have been taken. Do you realize if you study some of the church history in the nation of China, when the missionaries left because of the persecution of communism and millions of Christians in China were killed, the church went underground. And years later, when missionaries were finally allowed to get back in, to their amazement, they discovered a church that was empowered by the Holy Spirit and larger than the church they left. And the Chinese pastor said very politely, very kindly, thank you, but we don't need you anymore. <laughs> no, we know how to serve Jesus. We know how to grow the church. We know what to teach them. Of course, there's still a relationship there, but there's not the same independence. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And he's not talking about an indifference toward the preciousness of life. I believe he's simply saying that Satan wants you to believe that overcoming is about holding on to your life. Overcoming is about getting your own way. He says you need to understand that real victory is about possessing a faith that is able to let go of what you cannot keep, to lay hold of what you can never lose. That's what real faith is. That's what overcoming faith and may I encourage us to understand in these days in which we live, because I believe with all my heart that we are in a season where if we will allow the Lord, he is training us for tribulation. He is training us. It's in the small things where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and he's saying, will you give me this? Will you die to this? Will you let go of this? Are you looking for your identity in this? Will you let that go and find your identity in me? All the things that he's talking to us about, the small little things that sometimes we think are optional, we need to understand when the Lord is speaking to us, our attitude needs to be, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Don't know when it's coming. Don't know what is coming. But, Lord, I know you're preparing me. You're preparing your people. So, Lord, help me to be obedient to the things that you're training in me now. And he will train those things in you in the context most times of your relationships of your spouse, your children, the workplace where the Lord is calling you to die, where he's calling you to turn the other cheek, where he's calling you to be like him and to show his presence, where he's calling you to step out and to grow in faith and to rely once again on the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. In all these things, that our attitude would not be that it's optional, but we lay hold of what it is the Lord wants to do. Because when the Jesus rose from the dead, what he basically was telling us is no matter what it looks like, hell has not conquered and it will never conquer those who persevere until the end. The Lord says something interesting in Revelation 13. He says this, Antichrist was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Now listen to this last line. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names, what? 
have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. So be encouraged and talk more about that in just a moment as I close. My third and final thing we need to know is that Jesus is going to return at the sound of the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, some people take that phrase, the last trumpet, to mean that Jesus is going to come when the last of the seven trumpets that are mentioned in Revelation 8 through 11, which are trumpets of judgment, that when that last trumpet is sounded, then Jesus comes for the church, which means a rapture takes place at the end of that seven-year period or Daniel's 70th week. It's called post-tribulationism. The problem with post-tribulationism, as we've already seen, number one, is that the seven trumpets contain the wrath of God. We have not been destined for wrath, right? We are not here for the wrath of God. We've already seen that. So what is this last trumpet? This might come as a bit of a surprise. I believe this for a long time. There's actually Messianic Jews who back me up on this. But what is this last trumpet? This is going to sound heretical for some of you. Are you ready? Nothing super profound, but it's going to sound heretical to some. That's right. Paul loves this stuff. Hit me again. When Jesus returns, he's going to return in the fall. He's going to return around this time of the year. Now, my wife's getting real nervous. <laughs> She's thinking, I really enjoyed Moncton, Paul. How do we know this? How many feasts did God give to Israel? Seven. Okay, the answer is always God or seven. You're in church, okay? Seven speaks of fullness. Each of the seven feasts that God gave to Israel speak of different aspects of God's redemptive work of salvation, bringing man to the place not only where he's saved, but finally to the day where he dwells with his people. He is their God, they are his people. That's God's whole plan in the seven feasts. There were four feasts on the Jewish calendar that were fulfilled in the spring. The other three are to be fulfilled in the fall. That's when they took place year-round, seven feasts all year. The first four feasts of Israel were fulfilled to the very day when Jesus came and died on the cross. The first feast, you may recall, is the feast of Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus was crucified during which feast? Just gave you the answer. Passover, okay? He fulfilled it to the very day. The second feast that Jesus fulfilled is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It had to do, the picture, the imagery has to do with Jesus being laid in the tomb. The third feast that Jesus filled to the day was what? The feast of first fruits. When Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says, him rising from the dead, he is our first fruits, those of us who trust in him. He was raised on the feast of first fruits. Fifty days later, Jesus said, I'm going to send to the Holy Spirit. When did the Holy Spirit come? Fifty days later on the feast of Pentecost to the day. All four feasts. Now, if the Jews had received Jesus, he would have finished the other three feasts. They did not. So we have this thing called the church age. What is the church waiting for? The church is waiting for the rapture of the church to be reunited with Jesus, right? What did Paul say? At the sound of the last trumpet, 
the dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up be with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What is the next or the fifth feast on the Jewish calendar? The next feast to be fulfilled is the feast of trumpets. What a coincidence, right? When does the feast of trumpets take place? In the fall. The Feast of Trumpets is the same as just another name for Rosh Hashanah. You familiar with Rosh Hashanah? We just celebrate Rosh Hashanah last Sunday. Rosh Hashanah, is, Rosh means head. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. It's the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Now, there's something interesting about the Feast of Trumpets, at least something that I, that I find interesting, and I hope you will too. The Feast of Trumpets... In Leviticus 23, he said, uh, the Lord said to Moses, this is to be a memorial of blowing of trumpets, plural. In the Feast of Trumpets, there are more than one trumpet. There are many trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets marked two things. Number one, it marked the end of the agricultural year. It marked the end of the harvest. When the trumpet was blown, announcing the end of the harvest, that agricultural year, thanking God for his faithfulness, for the harvest they've received, at the same time that trumpet announces what is called days of awe. Days when everybody was to be introspective, reflective, and repentant of sin. The last trumpet Paul speaks of will declare the end of the harvest, salvation, the rapture, us going to heaven, and also announced to the world that God's wrath is at hand, or what I would call, or what the scripture calls, the days of awe. So I believe, according to scripture, the last trumpet, it's not the trumpet of judgment, the last trumpet are the trumpets, plural, that are blown for the Feast of Trumpets. Now, when we talk about tribulation, even martyrdom, our first thought tends to be, will I be able to withstand the persecution, or will I deny the Lord? Anybody ever had that thought? Is it just me or has it crossed your mind? Right? It's a concern for believers. And yet I also believe there's a very special grace provided for those who are walking with Jesus Christ. How many remember the name of Stephen in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7? Stephen was the first Christian to die for his faith in Christ. Do you remember when they were when they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and they were basically grilling him and he was testifying, the Bible says they looked on Stephen. He, he caught the attention of many because as he was speaking, his face shone like an angel. Well, they eventually decide that they're going, to they're going to kill him. They take him outside of the city and they're stoning him. And as they are crushing his body with stones, what are his last words? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Sound like anybody you know? It's exactly what Jesus said. So I can't help but wonder if what happened to Stephen is maybe not a prophetic picture of the church in these last days. Not just in martyrdom, but in a manifestation of the love and presence of God to a dying world. A love that loves the world enough that it's willing to lay down its life that those who don't know Christ may know him. Now, I know somebody's probably thinking, yeah, but Paul Stephen was an exceptional man. No. Don't sell yourself short. Stephen was an ordinary person just like you and me who loved Jesus Christ. But there was an enabling grace that settled upon him in his hour of trial. You see, your face does not shine like an angel. 
because you've reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. Your face shines like an angel because of a grace work of God that comes upon you in your time of trial, in your time of need, and in the time when everything is in you saying, Jesus, help me be faithful. Help me to be a witness for you. Help me to shine for you and show them the reality of who you are. And I believe that's what the church has to look forward to in these last days, a confidence in God that I don't think we've had for a long, long time. And not only are you going to see what happened to Stephen happen in the church, I also believe what you saw happen to the Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, you're going to see that happen to those who persecute you. Remember what happened to Paul? Acts chapter 7 tells us, and musicians, if you want to join me, appreciate it. In Acts chapter 7, the scripture tells us that Stephen is, is, is before these people. His face is shining like an angel. And Paul the apostle, or the Saul at the time, his name was changed to Paul. Paul the apostle was actually watching the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. Remember that? You know the story? Paul is now traveling on the road to a city called Damascus where he's imprisoning Christians, dragging them to the home, throwing them in jail. And he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say to him? Paul, how long will you persecute me? And other translations include these words. How long will you continue to kick against the prick or against the goad? The prick or the goad was simply a stick that had like what we would call like a little nail on the end. And when you're driving your oxen, you would tap it on the side. You would goad it to stay in the right course or to turn right or turn left. And what an oxen would sometimes do if it got tired of that is it would, you know, strike against when it felt that tap. But in doing so, it actually drove itself more into the goad. And it hurt more. And what, what, what the Lord was saying to Paul, I believe, was this. Paul... I know you love me. I know you're devout. I know you want to serve me. I know you want to honor God. But how long are you going to deny that what you saw on Stephen's face was the real thing? That the God you profess to know and love is actually the God who Stephen knows so well that he's reflected on his face. And you don't have that relationship with me. And I believe this was eaten away at Paul as he saw this man just shine with the countenance of God in the midst of death. And it so tormented Paul. They're saying, I don't get it. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm working for God. But this guy knows God. I don't know him like he does. And Jesus is only going to keep fighting that. Serve me. I'm the Lord. Serve me. And friends, it's in the midst of our persecution that we have an opportunity to shine as a light in the darkness. And friends, that doesn't just happen maybe five years or ten years from now in a situation like this where it may cost us our lives. Friends, you have that opportunity almost every single day in your office, in your family, whatever the situation may be. You have an opportunity to be a light in the darkness. You have an opportunity to show people around you by your submissiveness to Christ and say, you know what, the important thing is not that I get my way. The important thing is that I glorify Jesus. The important thing is that people see that Jesus is real. I'm not just religious. I have a relationship with Jesus, and I act a different way. I live a different way. I respond a different way because of who is in me so that people come to you someday and say, I don't get it. I, I, we were in that conversation, and why didn't you 
get your pound of flesh? Why didn't you retaliate? Why, how could you be so patient, so loving, so... What's happening? They're having an encounter with Jesus. Saying, how long are you going to deny the fact that you may be religious, but this person actually knows me, and you can know me too? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? We've been so graced by the presence of God. As Bernice said, I really believe that there is a shift. Just in the body of Christ, not just at Glad Tidings, the body of Christ, but certainly here too. And when a shift takes place, it's a time where the Lord begins to shake, but he also gives us the opportunity to decide, whose side are we on? Where are we standing? Is the faith that we're standing on, the theology that we're standing on, is it going to be able to stand up in the last days? Or are we really on solid ground that we know, that we know, that we know Jesus Christ, that we know that we are his, our identity is in him, and that we're responding to the things that he's speaking to us about. I just want to ask you this morning before we leave this place, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can sense that things are shifting. The ground underneath you is not 100% certain. You don't really have that solid ground. And you would say this morning, I don't know Jesus. At least I don't know the Jesus I saw moving here this morning and the testimonies I've heard. But you say, I want to know Jesus. Not be religious. I want to know Jesus. If you're here this morning, we're not going to prolong it, but you just lift your hand, would you? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you say, I want to know him. I want to know the living God. I want to have a living faith. Is there anyone here this morning? You say, I don't have that certainty, but I want to know him. And still nobody looking around, but I want you to weigh this out seriously. As a promise before God this morning, nobody's looking at you. But if you're here this morning, you would say, I sense the shift. And I don't know what's ahead. I don't know what it's going to require of me. But I just know that God is stirring things. He's been shifting things, stirring things in my heart. And I just want to make a commitment this morning that I want to be just established in the Lord. I want to be a part of what the Lord is doing. I don't want religion. I really want to experience, as Paul said, that the kingdom is not in word only. It's in power a demonstration of God's spirit and power. And I want to be there. Anybody would just raise their hand with me and say, I sense that shift. And I just really want to just consecrate myself this morning in these days in which we live to say, Lord, I want to be serious. And it doesn't mean you're going to be like anybody else, but it means in your heart, as Peter says, I am going to consecrate the Lord Jesus in my heart. I'm going to get serious about the things he says you've got to stop messing around with. Things he's been talking to you about, those things that bring grayness into your life. And say, Lord, I just renounce those things. I don't care if other Christians do them. I don't care if the world says it's not a bad thing. You have touched me. You're calling me to something deeper. And, Lord, I'm giving myself to you this morning. And it may be a nervous thing to do as well, but you might also say, Lord, I want to really begin to grow in the fullness of your spirit, the gifting of your Holy Spirit. I want to be a, a greater witness. I want to have courage to obey you when you're prompting me and you're lighting on my heart and showing somebody that I need to go and minister to. Lord, I want to do that. I don't just want Sunday Christianity. I'm tired of coming to church and just vowing every week, Lord, I'll try better this week. I'll, just, I'll try better this week. I'll read the word this week. I'll pray this week. I'll, no, Lord, I'm just done with that. I thank you that you're so patient and gracious. But, Lord, I make a commitment this morning. I'm going to be in your word. I'm going to be in your presence. I'm going to start stepping out as your Holy Spirit prompts me. 
and I'm going to start getting rid of all those little flies in the ointment, all those things that rob me of my authority. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. Anybody say it's my heart this morning? Is that our heart this morning? I believe with all my heart that what God can do, the magnitude of what God can do in our midst is in direct proportion to the unity of the body who call glad tidings their church. The power of unity is not all just believing the same thing. It's all being the same of one heart, one mind. That's what it was in the upper room of the book of Acts. Homothumadon is the Greek word. They burned with common passion. All different gifts, different personalities. But the one thing united them was a common passion for Jesus and to see him glorified. I just want to pray with you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your great grace and for your love. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Jesus, that you said, these things are coming, but don't let that be your main focus. Let this be your focus. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to every region of the world where you live. I thank you, Lord Jesus, it's about you. And I just pray this morning, Lord, for just a fresh or a stirring of a hunger in our hearts, Lord, just for you, the simplicity of loving you and knowing you. And I pray, Lord, that you be sensitive to what you are shifting. As Peter says, everything will be shaken that can be shaken, so that only that which can stand will remain. Lord, let that be our testimony this morning. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, would you stand with me?